Hey, Sebastian. What's up, Tim? Our podcast today is the story of a family that tries to follow the official UK government guidance on how to protect themselves and survive a nuclear war. I wonder if this advice might be helpful on how to survive Brexit these days. Tim, I think you're being super critical. And a little bit rude. Sorry about that. Welcome to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear nonproliferation for a living. And I'm joined today over Skype with Sebastian Brixie Williams, the co-director of BASIC. What's BASIC? It's a think tank based in London that connects governments, policy influencers, and academics to create and implement credible proposals to build international trust, reduce the risk of nuclear conflict, and advance nuclear disarmament. Welcome, Sebastian. It's a pleasure to be here, Tim. You know, when I was a bit younger, and uh, before I started working on nuclear weapons policy issues, I did a graphic design foundation, and then an English degree. So in a way, this uh, talking about this book is a perfect storm for me. This is perfect. And uh, you've had some great content on Twitter recently posting about your research getting ready for this episode. So check check out uh, Sebastian on Twitter at SEB underscore BW. Uh, also your organization's Twitter, which is uh, at basic underscore INT. And I'm glad you're here because, you know, you're an expert. You're an expert on nu- nuclear norms, uh, responsibilities and multilateral disarmament. So you are the perfect person to talk to with me today about When the Wind Blows, which is a 1982 comic book and a 1986 animated movie about a middle-aged couple, very nice people, James and Hilda, that try their best to follow the official government guidance about uh, how to survive a nuclear war. The comic and movie are done in a animation style that resembles kind of like a children's story, but uh, don't let that fool any of the listeners here. It is horrifying. Yeah, that's right, Tim. I realized in the course of doing some of this research that there's uh, there were a handful of stage plays put on in the 1980s, which I imagine must have been pretty difficult to sit through. Hmm. Um, but there was also a BBC radio play in 1983 um, where the character of James is voiced by Peter Salis, who plays Wallace in the Wallace and Gromit uh, <laughs> claymation animations. So Wallace and Gromit is another kind of quintessentially British cultural product. If you, if you don't know it in America, it's, it's worth Googling. And uh, I'm pretty convinced that that radio version is the most depressing expression of that universe. Mm. Uh, of them all, it, it's really difficult to listen to. So, so if, you love the, if you like the film, then you, you'll love that. I, uh, I, I've watched the film. I've read the comic. I have not done the radio play yet. I'm going to have to work my courage up for that one because this was tough enough to get through uh, just reading and watching this. It certainly is. Yeah. Well, the 1982 comic book, uh, it was written and illustrated by Raymond Briggs. He's best known for The Snowman, uh, which is a children's book that was made into a Christmas movie. Do you remember watching this movie around the holidays, Sebastian? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the UK, everybody's seen The Snowman and probably multiple times. It's a really charming book uh, and film. So it's about half an hour long. They play it at just after lunch on Christmas Day when everybody's feeling kind of full and maybe a bit drunk and the kids need (laughs) something to do. Um, And it's made up of 200,000 beautifully hand-drawn pencil drawings over this half hour. And it's about a kid who gets up in the morning and there's, he, he sees there's snow on the ground. It's a white Christmas and he gets very excited and he runs outside in his dressing gown and he starts making a snowman. He gives it little coal buttons and a, a fruity nose and a hat and a scarf and that sort of thing. 
And later at the night, he, he, he looks out of his window and the magic happens then and the snowman comes to life. And so what follows is a kind of fun escapade with the snowman. And in the end, they go flying uh, over towns and cities and countries and end up at the North Pole uh, where they meet Father Christmas. And uh, the, the music from that film, We're Walking in the Air, is, is pretty famous. And at the end of The Snowman, they land back in his garden and he goes to bed and he wakes up in the morning and the snowman's melted. Mm. So it's this kind of rather charming, beautiful story, but, but tinged with, with a bit of sadness as well. <laughs> well, Raymond took that beautiful story and then used the same animation style to make more of an adult book when he made When the Wind Blows. And I think it works pretty well. It's a very serious subject, obviously, but it's done in a in a very disarming way. And I think the combination of those two things is quite good. And how would you compare, uh, you know, based on your experience of growing <laughs> up with the snowman and then having to watch this? Did you, did you, so you started with the snowman and then went to When the Wind Blows, right? You didn't have parents that switched those around on you? Thank, thankfully not. But um, I mean, these two books, uh, and films couldn't be more different. And When the Wind Blows actually it has a really strong emotional resonance for me because when I was about eight or nine, I can pin it down to what we call year four in British schools, I picked up the graphic novel of When the Wind Blows mm. in, in the book box that you leave out for kids to pick a book uh, and take back to class and read over lunchtime or something. I, I remember very clearly at the time thinking it was Gone with the Wind. Mm. And I was being terribly grown up by choosing, you know, this rather adult, story and I should probably get it under my belt mm -hmm. and I probably recognized this the style of the drawings as well because I, I definitely would have seen the snowman probably a number of times by then I'd probably also read another book by um, Raymond Briggs at the time um, called Fungus the Bogeyman hmm. in that year I remember reading this book in in class and getting to the end of it and just not really understanding what happened. This nuclear attack happens, but, but at the time I didn't really have a concept of a nuclear attack. So, so some sort of weapon is used, and then without spoiling the ending, although we're gonna be doing that pretty soon, you mm -hmm. know, the two characters suffer m much longer after the, the attack happens. And I remember thinking there must be something about the weapon that was used in this book that caused that suffering, but not, not having any sense of what radiation is. So in a funny sort of way, I'm, I'm a bit like James and Hilda in the book. They, they survived the blast, but then uh, the consequences are felt later. They didn't have a copy of uh, any sort of, sort of nuclear war survival guide. Protect and survive. In that children's bin as well. Uh, alas, maybe I would have understood a bit better. Although, you know, again, maybe not. It was in that year though, um, uh, in, in this uh, year four, uh, pictures of atom bombs start appearing in my drawing journal. Hmm. And to give you some context, my drawing journal had uh, stickers of Pokemon all over the front. Um, and I didn't know what an atom bomb was, but clearly I had some awareness of it from this book. I had this image of an atom bomb being the size of an atom, or even a little bit smaller than an atom, because mm -hmm. actually the atom's been split. And so in the drawings, an atom bomb is just a dot with a pencil, and then a huge arrow that says atom bomb <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> Yeah, and I had this, I, I had this image of of um, airmen in the back of planes trying to cut, trying to split the atom with a knife on a chopping board. <laughs> um, and that that could be its own uh, children's story, uh, right there. The, the Manhattan Project, as told by kids. Right. What do What do you know much about? You know, Raymond Briggs's uh, thoughts about kind of why he decided to take that animation style and and tackle a, a topic. Uh, which is a little bit more uh, serious than, say, Christmas. Raymond Briggs is quite careful not to sort of get himself categorized just as a, a children's book writer. So Fungus the Bogeyman, which I mentioned earlier, uh, again, kind of looks like a children's book. And lots of kids read it, and it's pretty harmless, certainly as compared to When the Wind Blows. But in many ways, the jokes 
uh, in Funkus the Bogeyman are, are pretty adult in theme. There's this great quote I found online when I was researching for this, which is, I just write about the things I want to write about. People are always saying, well, who did you aim this at? And I keep replying, books are not missiles. You don't aim them at anybody. That's a great quote. So you just sort of let them loose into the world and, and see who they hit, you know? Uh, <laughs> just happened to be you as an eight or nine-year-old. Right. You know, there was this whole cultural battle going on long before I was born and growing up in the 1990s. And I think in a sense, I was kind of caught up in the fallout of that battle mm. uh, a decade later. It was quite a long battle for for Raymond because he actually even had a prequel book called Gentleman Jim, which is about the same characters that we're about to talk about here in When the Wind Blows. Um, but I guess it's Jim as a, in, his, in his middle of his life, goes through a little bit of a midlife crisis, tries to find a more adventurous job and more exciting life, tries to improve his working class condition. It's very, very childlike, very optimistic. Uh, he's got his supportive wife, uh, Hilda, with him, uh, who I guess are based on Raymond's parents, uh, which is, you know, pretty sad when you get into the plot itself of When the Wind Blows. Yeah, and I, I think what the book manages to do is, I'm sure for a lot of people in the country, it reminds them of their parents or grandparents as well. Mm -hmm. um, certainly, Hilda reminds me of my grandmother, who's, who's still alive in many ways. And Briggs doesn't really try to hide this fact. You know, his name is Raymond Briggs. The character's name's uh, surname is Bloggs. The son of the characters is called Ron. So you have an R Bloggs, R Briggs mm -hmm. kind of parallel there, which is really neat. And, and Ron goes to art school uh, just like Raymond did. But there's also James Bloggs. Uh, if, you, if, you, if you take uh, the first initial, you get J Bloggs. And that's very similar to Joe Bloggs, which is, I don't know if you have this in the US, but you, uh, it's, it's the equivalent of John Doe. Mm. So it's like an everyman type name, uh, but it's also maybe the name that you might give to a corpse. So it's kind of prescient in, in that respect. Ooh, wow. Yeah. No, no, that makes a lot of sense. And But for me, the connection is uh, Hilda does kind of act a little bit like my mom. And I have to be careful because my mom listens to the podcast. Uh, hi, mom. <laughs> uh, no. Sh so the character is very similar to how my mom, I remember acting when I was a kid and my father's name is also Jim. So watching this together, uh, we'll get into it at the very end of the episode. Um, but it it, uh, it got me pretty good. Film I think has more of an emotional resonance for me, given the acting and, the, and everything, how it works together. The comic book is good. It's very, very good. But I didn't get that initial connection until I was kind of watching it as the film itself. This is very biographical uh, for Raymond because Raymond Briggs lives currently in Sussex um, and grew up there as well, uh, I believe. And so the house, you can, you can actually pinpoint where the house is um, in the first frame of the uh, the graphic novel because there's a signpost mm -hmm. which has these these four villages uh, signposted and it's legible. What the, what that does, what that that location does, is it means that this isn't going to be a target for a direct hit. This is a place where you're going to get the fallout. And and I think probably this we're talking about one or more missiles hitting London that are in the tens of megatons mm -hmm. kind of level of size, and then. A, a strong northerly wind, <laughs> yep. which is blowing blowing south of London. We'll talk a lot about the different uh, guidance materials that this book and the movie references that the our main characters try to follow. One of which, the big one, is uh, "Protect and Survive," which was a pamphlet that was prepared and in, in, in ready. You could purchase it if you wanted to at your local civil defense coordinator. But the idea, I guess, was was that it would be distributed in times of crisis and printed and, and, and made ready for people. Literally, in the introduction of this, it says, um, "If Britain is attacked by nuclear." bombs or missiles we do not know what targets will be chosen or how severe the assault will be if nuclear weapons are used on a large scale those of us living in the country areas might be exposed to as great a risk as those in towns and that is really firmly 
established in this film. Doesn't matter kind of mm. where you are. Even even like uh in the movie The Day After for the United States, that TV movie, it's purposely based in Lawrence, Kansas, the center of the country where who would ever think that this would be a problem here? Nevertheless, this that's what the kind of the story tells of this, you know, it doesn't matter where you are, the bomb will find you. Maybe ex- except if you're in the North Pole with uh, Father Christmas. Yeah, and I, and I don't want to ruin everybody's Christmas here, but I... As I researched this, I realized that the little boy in uh, The Snowman is also called James. And so there, it did cause me to wonder whether this is actually the same universe. And, and little James in The Snowman <laughs> grows up to be James of James and Hilda, uh, who, who dies of radiation sickness uh, after a nuclear blast. And, and what does that mean for Father Christmas? So yeah. maybe don't think about that too much. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and if your name is Jim, uh, like the one of the main characters in Threads is named Jimmy. If your name is Jim and you're in the United Kingdom, just just be careful. Uh, get no, underground. Right, live underground. I have a few more things before we get right into the, the actual kind of meat of the conversation here. Uh, it looks like this book as well was inspired uh, when Raymond was watching a documentary on uh, nuclear war preparations in the TV show. I guess it was like a news series, uh, Panorama TV. So he says, Raymond says, I was watching a Panorama documentary on TV about nuclear contingency planning. It affected me strongly and I thought, here's my next book. I want to see if a nuclear attack does happen, what do people actually do? I felt very strongly about government propaganda. The authorities were playing it down, pretending like it's the Second World War when it jolly well wasn't. Yeah, and the title itself, I guess, is based off of uh, an old children's nursery rhyme, Rockabye Baby on the treetop, When the wind blows, the cradle will rock. It's pretty spooky. Spooky enough as a nursery rhyme, let alone when you mix in the nuclear war element to it. Absolutely, and I think I think it's worth saying the end of the nursery rhyme here as well. It's just when the branch breaks or when the bough breaks, the cradle will fall, down will come baby, cradle and all. Oof. So, I mean, this is a lullaby. I remember my mum singing this to me when I was a kid. And you hear it being played in a sort of music box style in several sequences in the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it does, a, it does a wonderful and really um, uncanny job of kind of evoking that sense of instability that the nuclear balance, so to speak, tries to overcome. I also think there's possibly you know, is this kind of insinuation that it's, actually it's babies who are at the top. But it's not just babies that fall if it all goes wrong. It's actually Cradle and All and James and Hilda are kind of in that all category mm-hmm. uh, that come down with baby. Yeah. And uh, as, a, as someone who has a child coming in March of uh, next year, uh, I don't think I'm going to be singing this one all that much to the kid because I, <laughs> I, will, I will not be able to sing this song to my child while not thinking of uh, poor James and Hilda. In the movie itself, the 1986 film was directed by Jimmy Murakami, uh, who did, uh, for me, the big thing for me is he did several episodes of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles uh, television show from the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, but for but for The Snowman, he, I guess he was also the supervising director of that film itself. So I guess he has the connections to this art style. Right, and he also worked together with Richard Fordry, who's the, the lead animator who was involved uh they, they worked together on a film called heavy metal a few years earlier um so i guess forgery who would have been very junior at the time really impressed him and then he brought them on board and finally i guess the last two big things to talk about is you know who voiced uh, our two main characters here and who did the soundtrack yeah so i think the casting is uh pretty clever in in the film you have these two characters these two actors who are essentially british national treasures John Mills, who voices James, uh, who, who is himself a World War II veteran. He was known for World War II films like We Dive at Dawn, um, where he plays the kind of the hunky submarine captain type character. And I think that's important when, you, when it comes to the character of James, who's often reminiscing about what it was like to fight in the war and making all sorts of comparisons between then and, and now. Mm-hmm. 
And then Hilda, who's played by Peggy Ashcroft, who, who again is, you know, was anyway a very famous British actor. And she would have been known to American audiences because she won an Academy Award for uh, Best Supporting Actress as Mrs. Moore in A Passage to India a couple of years earlier. Hmm. These are people who would be etched into the British uh, uh, mindset, you know. Yeah, and, and they paired him with some great people for the soundtrack. Uh, we've got some, some. Uh, I think originally David Bowie was supposed to do the entire soundtrack, but he got busy, uh, so he just performed the title track. Uh, but the rest of the stuff is really terrific. Um, there's some music by people from Genesis, uh, as well as Roger Waters of uh, Pink Floyd. And I thought that was, the soundtrack for this is, is pretty, pretty great. Yeah, I think it's pretty awesome. I think, I mean, it, what what it goes to show is how you could get together these top top level musicians at the time to get behind a cause like this. Right. I love the opening song by David Bowie. You've got this wonderful contrast between this kind of drum machine heavy, kind of nihilistic, post punk soundtrack, and then this gentle animation of an old man <laughs> on a bus. Yeah. These two young lovers on the bus who are kind of being maybe a little bit, you know, open <laughs> and making him feel a little bit un- uncomfortable. Roger Waters did a lot of the soundtrack as well. Uh, he was famously kind of involved in uh, the campaign for nuclear disarmament. Uh, he was mm. the chairman of the Cambridge Youth Group uh, at the age of 15. And from the album The Wall, uh, the song Mother, uh, which has the line, Mother, do you think they'll drop the bomb, really stands out for me. And then Hugh Cornwell of The Stranglers as well. Uh, they did a punk song in 1979 called Nuclear Device or Wizard of Oz, A-U-S. Uh, which is about sort of nuclear themes in Australia as well. So I think what they that what they did is they went looking for people who'd written songs that had nuclear themes and they pulled them all together. And it, it's kind of like the equivalent of Live Aid, but uh, <laughs> for nuclear yeah. weapons. And it it worked out great. Uh, and it's it, this one of the sad things for me is is that this movie doesn't have a bigger place in uh, nuclear pop culture or or you know just in general pop culture. Uh, it it's very well re- regarded, you know, on Rotten Tomatoes. It's only got like eight or nine views, which is reflective of the fact that a lot, not a lot of people wrote on it. But, you know, it gets 86 uh, percent fresh. Uh, I don't know who would hate this movie. It's kind of very weird. Um, <laughs> it didn't have a very large theatrical run, at least in the, in North America. Uh, I think one theater, according to the sources that I saw, ran it. It grossed just over five thousand uh, U.S. dollars. Uh, not particularly very good, but everyone really liked it. You know, the the New York Times said that the book, um, at least for the book itself, it said the Armageddon comes, and we are in a place to which no picture book has ever taken us before. Humor has rarely been blacker. A terrific shock. What I guess that's it could be a good thing if you're if you're aiming for that. Uh, the Sunday Times said that it was a, the book was a visual parable against nuclear war, all the more chilling being done in the form of a strip cartoon. And uh, I guess even uh, the House of Commons, the the, the various MPs there uh, also really liked it too. I guess you said they they uh, they all got a copy uh, when the the yeah. comic book was finished. They sent they sent it to every MP in the country, uh, and the the back cover of the 1980s edition of the graphic novel that I have has a number of sort of select quotes from from famous UK politicians like Tony Benn, sort of giving their stamp of approval to the mm. message. So we've done a lot of introduction here. We've got a lot of buildup. Uh, let's get into the, the story proper. We're kind of, the movie and the book, I think actually work fairly close together. There isn't a lot of deviations. There's a couple extra scenes in the movie, but I think all of the major plot points kind of fit pretty well together. Mm. So I don't think we're going to have to worry about saying, oh, in the comic book, it's like this, but the movie, it's like this. It's pretty similar. I don't know how you're, you feel about that, but I think it's pretty close. At a few points, just I think for the sake of expediency, they cut the odd bit of dialogue from the graphic novel. Um, but by and large, I, there was only one thing I, I noticed, and we can maybe ask, we can talk about that later, Great. Um, which was a major deviation between the two. So yeah, I think you're right. Okay. 
All right, well, let's get into it. Uh, we'll uh, do our usual spoiler warning. If you haven't read this as a, a small child pulling it out of the, the child book bin, uh, or if you haven't seen it on uh, television, or if you maybe you weren't one of the 10 people that saw it in the United States when it was on uh, its theatrical run, uh, go out and check it out. If the book is, if you can find copies of it uh, available online, very, very cheap. And then the movie itself as well, uh, you can find streaming different places. It's pretty great. An extraordinary book is about to come to life as an unforgettable motion picture. It's the story of Jim and Hilda. Hello, dear. Hello, love. Did you have a nice morning, dear? Oh, uh, all right, thanks. Rather uneventful. <laughs> Two kind, well, simple people living on trust and It'll hope. It'll take more than a few bombs to get me down. The Prime Minister, speaking a few minutes ago in the House of Commons, has warned that the international situation is deteriorating rapidly. Crumbs! What's the matter, dear? Have you burned yourself? This is it, Ducks. Civil defence, man. This is really it. But now they're caught up in events which will change our world forever. Just you be careful, James. An enemy missile attack has been launched Oh, dear. I've left the oven on. Get in, get in, get in. So the animation style of the movie, uh, well, the book is very much like a, a, a Sunday cartoon strip. It's got a lot of uh, individual pictures on each page and everything is like lots of really thin rows uh, until it's not, until it's like large scale images for a particular dramatic effect. But the animation style of the movie is really terrific. It's a mix of like watercolor animation at the beginning, as well as some like live footage of protests going on i think it's a protesting and there's like various troop movements and various mm. trucks with missiles it looks like then it goes into stop animation uh and it's a combination of everything that's physical except for the main characters mostly is done through stop animation like they built small physical sets and then they did cell animation on top of it for uh the main characters i think that is a really terrific combination that i've not seen in a lot of different places in the beginning of the movie you get your David Bowie uh, over some footage of something happening in Berlin. Some kind of crisis. We don't really know what, but then we get onto our nice image of our, our friend on the bus. And we never do find out what happened. Uh, yeah. We only get the announcement over the radio uh, in, in a few minutes' time. So James gets off the bus and uh, and walks through his garden gate, which has Jamilda on it, <laughs> which is really cute. And, and I guess just like a little in-joke between the couple, because I, I couldn't find any other meaning behind it except that james and hilda it's just a celebrity couple name you know where you get portmanteaus combined together they're right. ahead of their times <laughs> indeed and you really get a sense of how bucolic this part of the countryside is you know rolling green hills this is classic english countryside if you can imagine that um he's wearing a pair of, of green suspenders he's really softly spoken he's a veteran of world war ii who's, who's now retired they've retired to the countryside together but you see him sort of before he's got on this bus reading the papers in the local library and just looking troubled, just sitting on this bus, looking troubled, thinking about the state of the world and worried about the Soviets and Afghanistan and, and the kind of a preemptive strike that he's read about. He's not, written, not entirely sure what that is, but he knows it might be coming. And he goes home to see Hilda and Hilda says he shouldn't worry uh, and it'll all just probably blow over. Phrasing. I've got to watch out for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's just one of a number of uh, sort of wind references that you can find uh, throughout the, the book and the film. 
Yeah, no, it's it's pretty great. The the writing on the in this is is terrific because you can't help but throughout this be like, oh, that's 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 funny, but I know what's gonna happen. But it's very funny. Hello, dear. Hello, love. Did you have a nice morning, dear? Oh, I'm all right, thanks. Rather uneventful. <laughs> you do seem a bit down, dear. Uh, yes, well, uh, been reading the papers in the public library all the morning. Oh, those things, full of rubbish. I never look at them. We must keep abreast of the international situation, Ducks. The decisions made by the powers that be will get to us in the end. Hilda is, um, she's great. She's a ho- She seems a, a homemaker, uh, but she's also kind of a busybody, always kind of running around, always trying to keep everything clean, even when um, we're trying to prepare for and deal with the nuclear attack. You know, she's got a, a mindset of kind of making sure that everything is managed uh, very well. And she's not too worried about it because like James, you know, Hilda grew up with World War II. And she remembers a lot of those memories is not too bad. And she'll, you know, they'll survive. They'll put on their, their tin hats. Well, if the worst comes to the worst, we'll just have to roll up our sleeves, tighten our belts. And put on our tin hats till it's VE day again. It won't be like that this time, love. I think this one is called the Big Bang Theory. It's all worked out by brilliant scientists. Well, we survived the last one. We can do it again. It'll take more than a few bombs to get me down. Yeah, I mean, this is another theme that just keeps popping up throughout the story. It's this kind of nostalgia for the British experience of World War II. And, and one of the scenes where she's thinking about it, you have the nursery rhyme of when the wind blows that's sort of playing over the top. And I think one of the, the big features of that nostalgia is this absolute trust in the government to make mm-hmm. the right wartime decisions because you had strong leaders at the time. That really pairs rather darkly with their continuous inability throughout this story to understand just how radically different a nuclear war would be to the Blitz. Yes, yes, we, um, we must, must look on the bright side, Dutch. Better go over to Radio 4. I like Radio 2. This is reflected even just in their conversation. I think it's probably over, I think it's over breakfast, uh, where they're, they're they're getting ready to eat and they're trying to decide what program on the radio to put on, whether it's Radio 3 or Radio 4. Um, and he hears the story on his program that there is an impending war three days away. situation is deteriorating rapidly and that war could break out at any time in the next two or three days crumbs this is it ducks this is really it and he's now convinced there there's therefore there's going to be a nuclear attack and he's so hot and bothered that he can't even uh finish his breakfast sausage <laughs> right yeah radio three is our classical music uh program radio four is our kind of talk show and there's there's a number of points in this early stage where you're swapping between this dialogue, which is about nuclear war, and then these interjections from Hilda, who's like, do you want mash or, or chips <laughs> with, with your sausages? And and James kind of steps out of role and goes, oh, chips, please. You know, <laughs> this is a really comic levity that, that makes the blackness all the more black. Sausages or beef burgers, dear? Uh, sausages, thanks. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a very true reflection, though. It's like people cannot be on high alert 
uh, all the time. They have to also be real dealing with their the reality of, hey, I've got to eat breakfast and I like breakfast. The movie Threads also covers this too because while I think in, there are multiple points in the film uh, mm. where the film starts as the two main characters uh, who are teenagers, they have a surprise pregnancy coming and they have to mm. still deal with that, you know, the reality that they're going to have to get a job, get a move in together and put up wallpaper. And while that's happening, there's this story on the news about some kind of impending crisis in the Middle East that could potentially spill over to nuclear war. But you can't just focus on that. You also have to put up wallpaper because you got a baby coming. And you need that in both films because because it shows you what life was like and then what life is you need that mm-hmm. contrast otherwise it's just darkness all the way through right uh but for james though he he mentions two main pamphlets that he received uh from the from the library from the local uh civil defense director he mentions uh one particular book is uh protect and survive uh which i got my copy here that i picked up at the imperial war museum when i was in london last year uh as well as advising the householder on protection against nuclear attacks uh, which is luckily he just picked that up because he gets to work uh ready to build a fallout shelter in their house uh and it's not like one of these he mentions a couple of the, like the, the old ones that they used to have during World War II, the like an underground shelter, like an Anderson shelter. And I got to tour one of these because they have one at the Imperial War Museum in London. These were like outside, they were large, curved, and galvanized uh, corrugated steel. They're kind of like a big tunnel. You put them, if you could, like you say you had it in your garden, uh, you put them there, you would cover it with soil or sandbags. And if you had soil there, you could even grow vegetables and, and flowers. And it looked pretty nice. And it's kind of meant to fit about six different people. And you would put that in your backyard. Instead, he builds what they're told to build because that's what it's what they have for their house, an inner core refuge. It's inside the house. You take the doors off their hinges. You go into the room in your house where there's a wall that is kind of furthest away from either the roof or from the outside walls. And you put those doors kind of at an angle and it looks like half a tent. It's kind of a lean-to. You put that stuff in there. And I think you're all supposed to put sand or dirt or bricks on top of it so that it's kind of more protected. But James does what he can. And uh, Hilda is not too happy about this because the civil defense guides do not have an FAQ on how to convince your spouse that survival of nuclear war is more important than damaging your home and the paint job on your doors. <laughs> Hilda is a lot more angry in the film than she is in the book, I think. Yeah. She's she's kind of this sweet old lady. And I guess when it came to making the film, they needed to have a bit more dramatic tension between the two <laughs> characters. But um, yeah, she's not quite as charming as she is in the book. Well, she, James says everything's going to be fine. He'll just uh, he'll he'll repaint the doors after the bomb goes off. Endlessly optimistic, James. <laughs> uh, he builds the room. I'm going to pull up my uh, survival guide here. He pretty much follows the instructions as they as they say. Take your sixty degrees. Uh, although James is like, I don't know, what is sixty degrees? How do you do that when you have the the doors against the wall? He calls his son, asks for help. I love that. But when you finally build these things. It doesn't look like it could fit all that many people. It can barely fit one person, let alone two, and probably not not enough for any sort of children or teenagers, if you imagine that. No, indeed, they're they're pretty cramped in there. I I think it's really adorable because he, you know, it says 60 degrees, so he does everything he possibly can to work out how to do that, which includes going down to the store to buy a protractor rather than just sort of, you know working it out with paper or something like that <laughs> and it just goes to show how how hard he tries to follow these guidelines yeah and then in the end how ultimately futile all of that preparation was yeah i mean it doesn't really matter if it's you know 50 degrees or 70 degrees that, that's not really the thing that's going to save you but he is very serious about that and then kind of the, one of the, the the odd moments that i have in this film is we get a little bit of well james is hammering away uh fixing making up the shelter we get this scene of Hilda in the garden outside of their home, and she kind of daydreams 
uh, a fairy that looks like her kind of flying around in the sky. There's like images of butterflies and flowers. Kind of looks like she just took a little bit of uh, maybe maybe a mushroom or some, <laughs> some other kind of fancy mushroom from her garden um, until she hears James hammering out the shelter and that kind of breaks her away from his thought her thoughts. What do you think the meaning of this is? It's kind of it's interesting like brief moment of, of maybe quiet life and fantasy before the impending storm. Yeah, I, it's pretty trippy, pretty weird sequence, and and I guess again you know it's one of these things that's there to provide a bit of contrast to what's gonna come. There are a few moments in the graphic novel where you have these bigger drawings which break out of the kind of the, the normal frame size, just for, for effect again, probably just to break up the pages a little bit. Um, so I think sequences like this are a kind of a nod to that, and maybe they act as sort of chapter markers in some respects in the film. But, but also the fairy imagery and the sort of fairy tale lullaby connection comes through there. And of course, uh, that sequence starts with Hilda blowing a dandelion. So it's another kind of wind reference again, you know, down will come baby. James, as we mentioned earlier, he calls his son and tries to ask him what a, what does 60 degrees mean? How do you figure that out? And he finds out that um, his son, Ron, is not following the government rules and regulations. He's not following the civil defense office's advice and building a shelter based on the, the pamphlet that James provided him. He gave him one of the pamphlets. Why isn't he following the pamphlet? James considers this to be a, a national duty for the for every for every citizen in times of war. The son is a little bit more fatalistic, right? He he quotes from a song. James doesn't say this is from a song. He just says that that Ron told him that we'll all go together when we go. Which is uh, from people that listen to this podcast will know that's from a 1959 song by uh, Tom Lear. For if the bomb that drops on you gets your friends and neighbors too, there'll be nobody left behind to grieve. And we will all go together when we go. What a comforting fact that is to know. Universal bereavement, an inspiring achievement. Yes, we all will go together when we go. Is the sun is like, you know what? I live in London. If a bomb goes, I go too. Yeah, if you don't know the song, you should definitely go and have a listen to that straight away because it's it's really, really funny. Uh, this is the moment, I think, which really hits home how the different generations are thinking yeah. about the prospect of war. You know, I, I imagine that Ron's probably just going to get to the top of the nearest building uh, as, as he, if he hears that the uh, missiles are incoming. And remember that James and Hilda's son is essentially Raymond Briggs, the illustrator of the original book. I just want to draw out a couple of lines from that song if it's not going to spoil your podcast no, let's, <laughs> later let, in the let's year. No, let's do it. A, a bit that goes, No one will have the endurance to collect on his insurance. Lloyds of London will be loaded when they go. Lloyds of London is a, an insurer. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, we will all fry together when we fry. We'll be French fried potatoes by and by. And there's, <laughs> <laughs> there's two really nice parallels to when the wind blows here. Uh, the first one is there's a, there's a couple of bits where they're talking about insurance. Um, and James reassures Hilda by saying that uh, the bomb won't cost us a penny because we're all fully insured. And, <laughs> and she mistakes mutually assured destruction for mutually assured insurance. Mm -hmm. And there's a kind of dark line about their, their, uh, their funeral being all but assured. But then there's a bit about potatoes as well. Uh, at two points in the book and the film, uh, James and Hilda get into old potato sacks to try and protect themselves from the bomb. And so in a sense, they kind of 
kind of become a bit like French fried potatoes yeah. uh, in that respect as well. So I'm sure it wasn't deliberate, but but I think these uh, these two parallels are worth noting. Yeah, that that is great, and uh, I'll mention that a little bit later. Is that the the scene near the end where they get back in the bags is like the that broke me the last time I watched yeah. this film. Yeah, I mean he's doing his best to to, to follow, uh, protect, and survive. Um, you know, this was like I mentioned, this is uh, it was made in the seventies and the eighties uh, in the United Kingdom. On how to survive a nuclear attack and protect your loved ones. Um, it was not meant to be publicly distributed very broadly, uh, and you could purchase it if you wanted to. Uh, but in the middle of a crisis, then. There was going to be uh, public service announcements, which you can watch on YouTube right now. They are one of the most disturbing things you'll ever find on YouTube, and that is that is definitely saying something. It's going to be in radio programs uh, and, and and also pamphlets, and it's very much rooted in World War II uh, air raid drills. And I, I know that one of the big assumptions that are kind of baked into this is that the people who were planning these things and planning the, the what we should do in the event of a nuclear attack on the UK, yeah. People realize that the United Kingdom is, you know, relatively small geographic area and the all the planning assumptions knew it doesn't take that many bombs to devastate a large portion of the country. These civil defense measures, you can maybe mitigate some things, but really uh, the best defense is preventing this from happening in the first place, which is why the government, you know, spends as much as it does on uh, building a nuclear deterrent and building alliances, thinking that deterrence would be the thing to be able to solve all these issues. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it just shows how futile um, the practical advice in these um, these pamphlets really was. But of course, it was enormously politically important that the government issued something like this yeah. because it gave people that sense of assurance that, you know, even if the worst happened, there was something they might be able to do about it. And, and they would keep voting for the same sort of governments. It was difficult because the United Kingdom was a, a large target because of, you know, lots of reasons, you know, being the power that it was, but also U.S. cruise missiles that were based in uh, the United Kingdom, in addition to the United Kingdom's, you know, submarine ballistic missile fleet. Also, those were pretty good targets. But yeah, the government's plan was pretty much try to avoid it in the first place. But what Hilda and James tried to do is, you know, they try to recall a time when they were dealing with a very similar circumstance. You know, I think Hilda reflects on how much she liked Joseph Stalin and his mustache and the common fight against Hitler and they kind of com- remember reminisce about you know what were the three powers that were on our side what were the the powers that we were against so kind of everything made sense back then and it was nice working with Stalin and she doesn't really understand why we're fighting the the Russians this time around and, and I think multiple times both of them mistakenly refer to the enemy as you know the Jerry's the Germans they keep having to correct each other uh, as the film goes on I think what's interesting here is uh, there are some there are some lovely caricatures of each of these leaders in both the book and the film. They they stand out both visually, but also I think you know in terms of their personalities. He was three men with very strong personalities in World War Two, and it was easy to kind of to build a story around them. Mm-hmm. And what what you don't get in the story in, in When the Wind Blows is you, you never actually find out who's in charge. They're they're kind of these faceless governments who are at war with each other. And there's a point where James tries to remember who's in charge of the Russians these days, because Hilda points out that Stalin's probably not around anymore. And he's going, is it Khrushchev or, or maybe it's Molotov? Or <laughs> actually, no, I think Molotov's just a cocktail. Uh, it's just layers of ignorance. And, and this kind of nostalgia for strong personalities is playing out in my country, in the UK, uh, a lot at the moment. And our, our Prime Minister Boris Johnson is drawing explicit parallels between himself and, and Winston Churchill. So it's still kind of alive and well, even among people who would have been sort of Ron's generation or, or even younger than that. 
I mean, that happens in the United States quite a bit. Everybody wants to be the next Ronald Reagan or Teddy Roosevelt. And I also really like the when James is like, well, him and Hilda are debating about how long the war will be. What will it look like? Will the Russians invade the United Kingdom? And James is like, no, I don't think so. I think the war is probably going to be pretty quick. It's, they're probably going to figure that out pretty quickly now because it's mostly done by committee these days. <laughs> and and they'll, they'll lay a bunch of conflict. And if they were to beat us, they would just send in a committee eventually to kind of rule and rule the rubble. A fascinating thing, but I do agree with him that there are uh, way too many meetings and committees these days. Meeting proliferation is a big problem. I, I deal with this myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's it's fascinating when when James and Hilda start to kind of recall their childhood. Uh, they recall things like uh, Hilda remembers her old family's uh, Anderson shelter and how it looked very beautiful. They painted it green. They grew flowers on top of it. We had an old Anderson in the garden. I can see it now. We had nasturtiums growing all over it, and we painted the front green. Painted, it looked quite pretty. Next door grew cabbages on theirs. Yeah, we had a Morrison. Mmm, I used to sleep in it. I stuck pin-up girls all over the inside. Uh, and they talk about this as well in U.S. guidance for how to build your own family's home shelter is don't think about it only as a place to go to when there's a nuclear conflict. Make it a rec room. Hold your local Boy Scout meetings in there. Uh, store all your records down there and go listen to them so that it becomes this like comfortable place that you can spend maybe the rest of your life in. But also it's it, that way you maintain it and it doesn't just become a, a place where it's cobwebs and rust start to form. James remembers reading magazines and sleeping inside of a, a Morrison shelter as a kid, which I saw one of these as well at the Imperial War Museum. It was very scary to see in person. It's basically a small rectangular box you put your child in and it's 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 like metal wire so that if I guess if the rubble were to fall, it would fall on the box and they would be able to pull the rubble off the kid. It's pretty scary. It's named after the Home Secretary of the UK from 1941. They tried to protect kids against falling, you know, yeah, bricks and wood. It's not a lot of comfort, is it? You wouldn't know that from the uh, from the way it's depicted in the film. It's kind of uneasy though, because on the one hand, it's almost like they're suggesting that World War Two was was a bit of a walk in the park. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's all framed through this this patriotic British nostalgia, which I think we all know to be a bit suspect of. It, it also reminds me of my grandmother, the the one who's still alive, who who had to crawl out of her burning house with the cat under her arm. Mm. So she was caught up in the blitz, and and the whole place uh, uh, burnt down. So you know, it makes me think, at least from from my limited family experience, this probably wasn't as nice as it's uh, painted. Would your grandmother stay inside of a, a lean-to shelter for two weeks? Uh, absolutely not. No, <laughs> I, my grandmother is very proper. She likes things done in the right way. I can't imagine her assenting to that. Quite a, a trip to memory lane for Hilda and James. I think they also mentioned things like sending the, the children out to the countryside to protect against uh, them being bombed. Uh, they talk about the blackouts and, you know, drawing your curtains and all of that. And, and everything seems good. You know, James and Hilda, they feel like they're going to they, they got this uh, under control. We can talk a little bit about some of the preparation and planning that they do. He, he says, and this is all based on the guidance, you know, in, in Protect and Survive and in the, the, the advisory for homeowners. You know, you want to make sure you get food supplies for 14 days. But, of course, you meet the reality of this. James can't get any food anymore. The grocery stores are completely out. What does he end up with? He ends up with pineapple slices, some cheese, some biscuits, and a can of Christmas pudding. And that's supposed to last them uh, t- two weeks. They're supposed to get enough water for two pints of water per person per day. Uh, Hilda measures out all of the water uh, in very, you know, very neat planning ways of like, like, 
basically like a table filled with bottles that don't have lids on them. They don't look particularly very secured. You're just watching it going, no, 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 not like that. You know, just at least put one bottle in the shelter, like anything. But uh, no, they're, they're so vulnerable, these kind of glass bottles. Yeah. Uh, I always think they, always look, they look a little bit like missiles as well. They're kind of scattered around in the field, pointing upwards. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's deliberate. It's before they buried uh, all of our missiles in, in underground silos. They used to keep them right up on top. Yep. Hilda is more concerned about making sure that her nice pillows are inside plastic bags so that they, they don't get any sort of fallout dust <laughs> on them. Uh, they're told to paint the windows white. And I think he says like to, to, to fight the radiation. But uh, this is actual guidance that is in all of these books. They say you're supposed to paint it with some kind of light color. And it's mostly to prevent the thought is prevent the f- initial flash of heat will reflect a little bit of it. And even one of the books I read says, don't worry, the glass will be shattered and flying into your window, but it will prevent the flash from hitting you and causing, you know, essentially flash fires for all of your furniture. So that way, when you're, once the blast is done, you don't also have your couch on fire at the same time. Small comforts. Yeah, we get what you can. They say to prepare a box of sand in the shelter, which we use to, to clean plates. Hilda thought it was for the cat's bathroom. Or, or even for their bathroom. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Hilda... like that idea. Yeah, Hilda is very concerned about the bathroom, which is completely reasonable. She really does not want to, you know, go in a bucket. She's like, no matter what happens, I'm going to go use a proper bathroom upstairs. And uh, I'm not going to get into the, the details of what Protect and Survive uh, say about... <laughs> uh, how to build your bathrooms or the u.s guidance on how to build a bathroom because i want to keep this show uh not explicit but it's basically a bucket and a chair with no you know seat on it but the thing that's so fascinating that james and hilda talk about is the guidance that he gets from his book is internally sometimes inconsistent sometimes mm. they say take the curtains down other times they see leave them up and i think the idea that is you take out you take the light curtains that could catch on fire off but you leave the heavy curtains it'll prevent glass from flying in but imagine you're trying to deal with this in a very stressful situation like maybe you only got your book 3 days before the war is about to start it's kind of hard to follow these things and and make a lot of sense of it and he's also getting conflicting information from the national pamphlets and the local county pamphlets it must be pretty stressful to have to kind of deal with this yeah absolutely and this is where he also mentions for the first time, he's not sure about this guidance he's getting about the paper bags. And he says that the guidance says to go inside paper bags right before the bomb drops to prevent um, something. You know, maybe it's to deal with the blaster. He can't, he doesn't know whether or not this is a joke or not. And I'm also personally not sure if this is a joke or not for by the author, Raymond, because I don't, I couldn't find any direct references to any sort of like go inside of a bag before the bomb drops. There's, there is a lot of guidance material out there about putting a paper bag on your head as part of insulation when it gets cold after the bomb drops and, and deal with that. So I'll, I'll post some pictures about this because there is a lot of, uh, you know, pretty something that could look out of Mad Max, you know, like a parka basically made <laughs> out of uh, paper bags. But I kind of think that this is an inside joke that that Raymond Briggs p- put in there. It's like, I'm going to put a bunch of really normal stuff and then I'm going to put something that kind of seems like it could be there. But it's also like right. just as futile as painting your windows white. Like, yeah, get in a paper bag. That'll be good. You put some eye holes in it. You look like a ghost. <laughs> I I think that's I think that's what the, the point of the, that this is trying to get at. But it is a very scary scene. You know, he gets in the bag and he looks kind of goofy. Yeah, it, it kind of plays with our own perceptions as readers, doesn't it? You know, if, you, if you're somebody reading this book and you haven't read the Protect and Survive pamphlet, you're not going to know any better. 
and and so it's really revealing uh, to those who are in the know just how potentially unintuitive a lot of the guidance is it's a very weird set of instructions generally which makes sense at the scientific level to some extent but but who's to say exactly um and then we get these like very ominous cutaway shots at various points of this uh of missiles we got some submarines we got some heavy bombers and they're in a cut with very like ominous music as well so we're clearly advancing towards something here james is an enormous sort of technological optimist and the kind of excitement that he shows when he's talking about these things, you know, you get these big smiles on his face and it's mm-hmm. almost kind of boyish, like a kid who's reading one of the annuals that you might get in the, the 40s, 50s, 60s, where they're talking about that new kind of, of fighter plane or something like that. So it's kind of adorable. And, and then, of course, at the same time, that makes it even darker. And, and when you're in the book, these shots of the planes and the missiles are full double page spreads. Mm-hmm. So you go from a comic strip to something that's really kind of overwhelming over two pages and then you go back into the comic strip again, and there's not really any ex- explanation of what they are. It's, the pictures are very dark, so it's kind of nighttime. Mm-hmm. So it's just this general sense of ominousness, which is which is never fully explained. They're trying to you know make sense of all of this, and Hilda and James debate about who would actually win a nuclear war. And uh, you know, you as the expert in uh, you know strategic thinking and the United Kingdom's you know nuclear policy, why don't you get into this a little bit? Kind of what is the the thought between that James is having about what the scenario would look like if the nuclear war were to play out? Well, James is pretty sure uh, that the the West would win. That's uh, I think there's a point where he says that I think the worst case scenario would be that we'd have to kind of march into Moscow and, and install a democratic government. I'm not sure he has any real sense <laughs> of how this would play out, really. He's certainly not a big strategic thinker, is our James. But he's, he talks about U.S. tactical nuclear weapons, which would have been stationed in uh, in Eastern Europe uh, as a measure to try and overcome the conventional superiority that the Soviets had. He calls it a tactile nuclear superiority. Tact- <laughs> which is one of a number of, of malapropisms that James uses throughout the film. And just goes to show how difficult it is to really get to grips with all the acronyms, all the acronyms and the yeah. uh, technical terms that he's trying his best to convey and, and trying to look kind of smart in front of Hilda. But ironically, it's getting wrong over and over again. You, you and I have been to uh, enough uh, nuclear conferences together where that people still do that, even if they're in the community that, we, that we're in. Uh, there's a big temptation to just throw jargon. There's a, a writer from the 80s who's still writing today called Carol Cohen, who calls it techno-strategic jargon, <laughs> uh, uh, which I think is a great phrase. And uh, she also wrote this fantastic uh, paper in 1987 called Sex and Death in the Rational World of Defense Intellectuals. And uh, it talks about the kind of sexual euphemisms that defense intellectuals broadly put used to talk about nuclear weapons and so on. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that phrase, tactile nuclear superiority, maybe this is just me, but I, I think that's a, it's a nice expression hmm. of that relationship between sort of sex and missiles and so on. Uh, if you're interested in that sort of thing, there's uh, a colleague in Geneva called Ray Aitchison, who does a brilliant TED talk called Banning the Bomb, Smashing the Patriarchy, which you should uh, really check out. I'll, I'll link to that in the, the show notes here. That's a, that is a great TED talk. And also, I think it's kind of fascinating because, you know, he refers to the tactical nuclear superiority of the United States and the West. Um, that is really re- reverted today. Uh, it's mm. now the it's now the Russians who have uh, larger numbers of tactical nuclear weapons, these 
there isn't really a clear definition. They're, they're relatively smaller bombs, but they're still larger than the nuclear weapons that were used against Japan. Um, they can maybe be dialed down a little bit. You use them in theater conflicts, you know, like a battlefield as opposed to hitting large strategic targets like a base or um, a, a city or a nuclear arsenal on the other side, whether it be a missile or a bomber base or something. But of course, tactical nuclear weapons are still really large nuclear weapons. Yeah. Um, but now the Russians have a large number of them stationed closer towards the border of NATO uh, because their conventional military is not as relatively powerful as much as it was in, during the Cold War. Now it's the, the NATO alliance that has that kind of larger conventional force. So the Russians, their plan now is to use, well, there's debate about this, is their plan actually to use nuclear weapons, tactical ones first in a conflict to prevent the other side from, you know, advancing further. That is debated a lot, but it's it's fascinating today to think about this being an inverted relationship, kind of different uh, than it was when this uh, story came out. Yeah, yeah, it's completely flipped. And, and a lot of people today in the arms control community really don't like tactical nuclear weapons. And I think rightly so, because the chance that you'll use one is, is generally pretty high. Well, it's significantly higher than if you're using some mega nuclear weapon to take out a city. Mm-hmm. You know, the temptations there always, if, if you've got some kind of relatively small target, to employ a tactical nuclear weapon instead of a conventional weapon. And then you get sucked into all sorts of escalation dynamics, which you just don't want to go into. So a lot of people would say, you know, keep nuclear weapons big if you're going to have them and then limit the circumstances in which you use them to uh, the smallest possible range as possible. And so ban or, or, or at least, you know, exercise utmost restraint with, with tactical nuclear weapons. You know, by the nature of them, they're relatively small uh, compared to uh, the kind of ones and missiles and bombers and, and, um, and submarines. So you worry about them either being stolen, diverted, or a field commander deciding today that they have the authority to use these weapons. And, you know, they go a little bit funny in the head, uh, like uh, uh, General Jack Ripper in Strangelove. <laughs> So we're we're getting faster, faster here, kind of getting towards the the big moments. We get a war, a radio warning uh, that says that a missile attack is underway now and will land in three minutes. An enemy missile attack has been launched against this country. It is estimated that the missiles will arrive in approximately three minutes. God Almighty, ducks! There's only three minutes to go. Oh dear! I'll just get the washing in. Shut up! I'm trying to listen. Stay indoors. Oh dear, I've left the oven on. Get in, get in, get in. The cake will be burned. James starts to panic. He yells obscenities at Hilda, uh, trying to get her into the shelter. She kind of refuses to do that. I think she's like baking a cake. And one of the first things that all of the survival guides say to do is, you know, if you get your three minute warning, send the kids into shelter. You make sure to go turn off your water and your gas and all of those things. But he's just like, no, we need to get to the shelter right now. They, They kind of jump in. We get a white flash. We get scenes of uh, the blast wave and smoke kind of overpowering cars, knocking over buildings, uh, animals. I thought that was a very effective scene is Mm. you see a a sheep kind of being blown away. Churches, they don't even get saved from this. Uh, We see trains knocked over. And then we get this very, very powerful scene, I think, of um, the explosion finally hitting James and Hilda's home. We get a mix of live action and animation. Um, We have a montage of James and Hilda's life together, kind of when they met, his time in the service, all of the... 
you know, raising kids and building their house together. And then it gets interrupted by this other kind of powerful scene I think you want to talk about here. Yeah, so, well, in the, in the film, uh, you see a teapot and a teacup and saucer flying in slow motion through the air. The music sort of starts and, and eventually it, it hits their wedding photo. So for me, that's kind of like the, the end of the uh, British way of life, the, symbolized by tea, um, but also then specifically their lives. Um, and the wedding photo kind of crashes to the floor. I also really like the way that this scene is done mostly in stop motion. In fact, I think there's a little bit which is which is possibly live footage where they, they kind of blow out the window mm-hmm. um, because it makes it all feel much more real. I, I think you'd lose something if, it, if this was just kind of drawn animation, at least in the kind of simple style James and Hilda are animated with. And I think they probably realized that when they were developing this film at the concept stage that it, it might have felt just a little bit too childlike if they'd done it that way. I really think that, you know, James and Hilda, the fact that they're drawn in this kind of cartoon style, it makes them almost a little childlike. You know, they're very innocent. They are trying just to do their best. They have a great amount of trust in the powers that be in government, but the world around them is increasingly becoming more real. It's becoming something that breaks into this sheltered life that they've been able to kind of build for themselves. And I, I think that the fact that the bomb explosions and things are done in, in real explosions, just kind of slow motion, really does hit that. The reality of the world is coming to get and break into their more childlike state. Yeah, I think it's a really nice point that at the beginning of the film, almost everything is drawn, I think. Mm-hmm. And as you get towards the end, pretty much everything except them is even the bags they put on themselves at the end. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, reality encroaches. It's unavoidable. I think it's worth talking about the, the moment the bomb goes off in the book as well, because it's really powerful. Some of the expectations you have of the book suddenly get broken, where people's speech bubbles stay within their frames, and you mm. have this huge kind of bulging lettering, and James is just screaming, just get in the shelter. And then as you turn the page, and the last, the last phrase is, uh, the cake will be burned from Hilda. And then you turn the page, and it's just all white for a whole double page spread. And then you turn the page again, the comic strip starts to kind of reform itself Mm -hmm. from the top left corner to the bottom right one, where it's kind of getting towards regular again. And that's kind of the explosion subsiding uh, and and the the shockwave. There's an amazingly powerful way to, to visualize that moment. I think this is one of the best depictions of a bomb explosion I've ever seen. And I do think that this is where the book is stronger than the movie. Um, the movie's good for the other things that we talked about, but even as good as that is, the book, the way that you, as you described it, just reading it, and even that white page you referred to, that kind of double white, white spread, the top right corner starts to have a little bit of like a, a reddish hue to it, which then mm-hmm. feeds into the next page that you're into it is hard not to feel something just looking at what is essentially a white page. They do a great job with that. And when you're reading, it's also silent. And there's something about that white and that silence that's, it's very, it forces you to be quite still for a moment mm-hmm. and kind of consider the whole moment. There's the other thing that stood out for me between the film and the book. In the in the book, he refers to as a bloody fool. But in the film, he calls her a, a bitch. Yeah. And when you're watching the film, that, that really stands out because it's... Um, it's not very British of him, in a yep. sense. You know, I, I can imagine there are people who don't curse, really. And, and so saying bloody fool, I guess, if you're distributing the book to kids, then it's, you probably couldn't do it with the word <laughs> bitch in. But when you're watching the film, it, it's, um, it's jarring. Yeah, and it's the only obscenity. <laughs> it's okay to put uh, images of people dying of radiation sickness in a bin for children's books. But if you put that curse word in there, 
It just doesn't really work all that well. But fortunately, James and Hilda, they're at least okay from the immediate explosion. Uh, everything looks dark outside, and everything is still really hot inside their house. They're very happy. James is super pleased with himself. His shelter is still standing. Hilda wants to go outside the shelter to start cleaning up because she can kind of see her entire house in disorder. You see some images of those very important pillows that were in plastic bags, basically melted and all torn askew but hilda doesn't understand radioactive fallout and, and james doesn't want her t- to go outside he says do the correct thing and stay inside the shelter yeah and they keep saying at this point that uh, the germans did it <laughs> uh, and I, I guess that phrase you know the jerry's just sort of rolls off the tongue a little bit here yeah uh, and he also then starts talking about uh the powers that be that created mutually assured destruction mad and this is where hilda starts to think thinks about mutual allied insurance <laughs> and he says my funeral is all paid for already which is, <laughs> which is a pretty dominant uh, a, pretty, a pretty dark uh phrase this this fits well too with the you know the the whole phrase powers that be because uh, that's got quite a, quite some really deep roots right yeah it might be worth dwelling on that for a second it's uh it's a reference to a verse from romans in the king james bible uh, to read the whole quote, it says, Let every soul submit himself unto the authority of the higher powers. There is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. So, of course, the, the powers that be here are, are kind of not good or ordained of God, but they are nevertheless forcing their citizens to submit under their authority. What, what could be kind of a slightly opti- uh, a positive phrase is kind of negative in the end. James and Hilda, they, they do their best to kind of follow that, that word, you know, whether it's get into a shelter or get into a, a paper bag. But James and Hilda, they're, they're feeling a little tired, right? They, uh, they got headaches. They're feeling a little little sick. Most of the time, they just make reference like, oh, well, that's just middle age coming on. Uh, everyone's going to have a little upset stomach here or there, or their knees are going to hurt. Of course, look how old you are. And so begins the long, slow decline. And it's never clear to me whether James is really ignorant about what's happening as things get worse, mm-hmm. or, or whether he's just kind of trying to comfort Hilda by, by drawing attention to all these things that it could be. Yeah, and I've thought about that a lot. Is I don't know which one to me is, I guess, sadder. It's nice to think that they're trying to comfort each other, and maybe they both kind of know what the situation is, but they're trying to remain optimistic. You know, very wholesome, protecting each other. You know, you talk about protect and survive. In order to survive as people, you make sure you try to protect your loved ones from the horror of what's happening. And there's some ways, if you can't actually protect them physically, maybe you can protect them with emotional support. But you also have that sad realization, too, that maybe they really don't understand what's happening because they were told by the government that everything's going to be fine, just treat it like you did world war ii and that ignorance is kind of another level of sadness and really almost upsets me just to see this happening to these individuals i mean the ignorance that they display is beyond what i think you could expect in real life true true probably and and so it's almost hyper real in that sense well when you talk about you know ignorance even even the guidance that they that they get from the powers that be tell them stay in the shelter for at least 48 hours but really you need to stay in there for two weeks. But James and Hilda, when they wake up uh, after the first night, they, they leave the shelter. James go to get some water, but it looks like all of the water bottles were knocked over or either broken in the blast. But, you know, James is like, uh, okay, great. No, everything's fine. Um, and then he goes to pour water out of the faucet and the faucet's shut off and he goes no well that makes a lot of sense government's thinking of everything of course they would turn off the water and the power and the gas then he goes to turn on the telephone to call someone but it's not working the radio and the tv don't get any sort of news i love how he says like we might even get to see our bomb on the news (laughs) but 
nothing's working. And they're like, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. You have to make sure that you maintain resources really well. And they'll just wait for the newspapers and they'll send some mail instead of uh, doing phone calls. And of course, the reason why the telephone and the radio are, quote, all dead is because they don't exist anymore. Right. The lines are broken. There is no newspapers that are going to come. It's a form of denial that just keeps reaffirming everything they want to believe isn't it? No matter what evidence you throw at the senses, the government must have it in hand because the government is the government and the government has things in hand. But I don't know if this was known. I don't think it was known at the time. I think this was only revealed in 2008 or something. There was a radio show in the UK. But there are a number of checks that a British Trident submarine commander has to go through before they're allowed to issue um, a launch order. And one of those key tests is to see whether the Today programme uh, which is like our morning program on BBC Radio 4, which is the talk show, is still broadcasting. Because mm. the idea is that come rain, come shine, come <laughs> come war, BBC Radio 4 will always get through. Uh, so if Radio 4 goes down for a few days, a sub-commander who's under the sea surface can, can start to build up a picture that maybe actually London is, is also down. Yep, and that's when they open up their letters of last resort. Right. Find, find out what their orders are from the... Uh... From, the from the Prime Minister. Right. Yeah, I mean, we don't know what those are. We've never seen any. <laughs> uh, and this, this is where it, I don't know, it's not its not great to feel like we're going to have to stay on this topic too much because it's really depressing. But, you know, it's clear that they're starting to get sick. They talk about headaches. Uh, they have pale skin. Uh, in the, the comic book, as you get closer and closer to the end of the, the book, the colors of their faces start to become a little bit more, their spots the, the white is not exactly white. It's like a different color mm-hmm. white from the beginning. They start to get the shivers. They're tired. They have stomach issues. But they're still optimistic that the government will come and help them. I mean, they'll bring Meals on Wheels trucks to get them to be able to you know, get some food. Once they deal with the big cities first is kind of what they refer to it as. And I would really recommend people listen to... There's a couple of great episodes of the Atomic Kobo podcast that Julia McDowell does. And she has a couple of great episodes on this Meals on Wheels program. How they were going to confiscate all of the ice cream trucks in, in the big cities. <laughs> and take them out of the city so that when the bomb goes off those trucks can be converted like a food truck into program for to bring food to people like they did you know kind of in world war ii everything seems like it's going to be fine and james and hilda even go outside for a walk right they get some fresh air but things don't look so great what does it look like outside uh, everything is just black and dead and they they go for a little tour of their garden and all of the leaves are off the tree and uh the vegetable patch you know he, he said he'll go and get a lettuce and he goes and he finds the, the lettuces have evaporated and there's a really horrible couple of lines about roast dinners uh, he says uh, terrible smell of burning it's like <laughs> roast meat Yes, roast dinners. I expect people are having their their Sunday dinners early this week due to the unexpected circumstances. And of course, you know, it dawns on you very quickly. This is the this is the smell of the people of London that's that's blowing in the same wind that's carrying the fallout. It's it's really, really nasty little image that their garden that you saw earlier that Hilda was having a little fantasy and that's all gone. Yeah. It's all burned. And in the film, you have a couple of milk bottles on the doorstep, uh, one of which is melted on one side and the paper's late. Yep. And they can't understand where the paper and the milk has got to. They want, they want to know who won the war. Yeah, I wonder who's winning. <laughs> and then there's this moment where they, they decide to have a little sunbathe in the garden. James goes and gets a couple of garden chairs and, and they lie there. It's a fantastic image of the two of them lying there, you know, just absorbing fallout, basically. And eventually it, become, it begins to rain and they, go, they think, brilliant, because all the bottles have blown over. Mm-hmm. So they go and fill up a whole load of thing, uh, you know, pans and stuff with rainwater. And I've always wondered here, you know, were they going to die anyway? 
were, did, had they had a dose sufficient enough to kill them or were they just a bit sick at this point and was it the rain that got them or or really was it just you know just <laughs> throwing more wood on the on the fire at this point yeah i i think people who maybe are uh, advocates for civil defense and be like, well, yeah, they clearly didn't follow the rules, which says to stay inside your shelter for sure for 48 hours and then really for two, two weeks until you get the all clear signal that it's okay to go outside. But, you know, James isn't too worried about it because he says at multiple points that modern science will be able to fix everything and they'll have a spray that will spray people that are sick with a radiation antidote and everything will be fine. But in uh, James is thinking about what he'll what his life's going to be like, right? Are they going to uh, he's going to get called up as a volunteer to help save the world from from this nuclear conflict. Is he going to become like a basically like a fireman and a rescue patrol? And he's having this whole vision of what his life is going to look like. Part of that's kind of central message of the film that individuals can use the best information that they have and try to survive a nuclear attack. You know, the fact that a nuclear war is so massive you know there literally is a movie called threads because it pulls the threads of society and civilization away when you have that it doesn't really provide much room for individuals to do much more than protecting the their loved ones there isn't a, a sense that volunteerism will fix this at least not in the, sh- in the medium term yeah it, it, it just shows how difficult well how impossible really it is to organize anything james there's a beautiful cut scene in the film of james riding on fire engines <laughs> and that sort of thing you know he's living through these different fantasies where he's playing the kind of hero role in the war but there's just nothing there's nothing like that there's just the two right. of them and, and maybe none of their neighbors have made it either you know it's just hard to know uh, do they even have neighbors <laughs> and we never do know because while hilda and james they clean up the house a little bit but they're starting to look kind of worse and worse and we finally get this uh you know this the scenes of the hair starting to fall out Look, my hair's coming out. People's gums and and lips are bleeding. They get spots on their legs, uh, which, you know, they think is either from too much tin food or, you know, common problems for middle-aged people. There's funny spots on my legs. Uh, various veins. That's, that, that's what that is. That's, that's a common complaint amongst, amongst the middle-aged segment of the populace. Oh, that's... It's just nothing to worry about. Their vision is starting to go and blur it in the books a bit. Everything kind of starts to become a little bit more blurry, a little bit faded out. Um, people who are kind of listeners of the show Chernobyl, did you watch that one on, on HBO? Or I guess oh, Sky absolutely. TV? Yeah, Sky TV is wonderful, Chernobyl. And uh, yeah, anyone who's seen those those scenes in, in the middle of the show, spoiler alert, where some of the the characters are are in the last stages of radiation sickness, uh, the makeup uh, is just incredible. Um, I don't think you could have done it at the time that when the wind blows was made. So so the way they do it in in the film, and I think particularly in the book, you know, you mentioned the colours a little bit. You get the the characters. It's almost like the drawings are starting to break. A yeah. little bit at the edges. They're kind of their faces are white except for these kind of green and yellow and pink tinges. And it just evokes this sense of absolute sickness. You know, we're talking about it relatively fast as well, I think. But actually as you're reading the book, this is not this is not a sequence that's quick. Their right. their decline is you know, maybe five, ten minutes of reading. It's it's really difficult to kind of get through. You can see it coming a mile off. They they still can't, even as they get closer and closer. Yeah, you you mentioned as you were mentioning about the colors and and different things. I I opened up my book, and I started to look at it. And I looked at three images, and I I put it down. I, I can't not right now. Uh, <laughs> it's it's too much. I saw you do that over Skype. Yeah, it's too much. Um, everything's gonna be fixed when the crisis is over. The the emergency services will get brung into action. This is the part of the film that broke me. Hilda suggests 
that they get back into the paper bags again. Shall we get into the, those paper bags again? Oh, 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 whatever for, dear? Well, you never know. There might be another one while we're asleep. Well, I, I suppose it uh, wouldn't hurt. It, it would be a, a, a sensible precautionary measure in a, in a, in innocent circumstances. Oh, it's stuffy in these bags. <laughs> now, now you know what it feels like to be a potato. <laughs> I should hate that, being buried in the ground. Oh, yes, 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 so would I. Give me information every time. Oh, me too. This is where I think James says a joke like, uh, now, I, now I know what it feels like to be a potato. Yeah, that's horrible, isn't it? That that broke me. I uh, I uh, I started cr- crying pretty bad um, as they crawled in their bags into the shelter, and in the film, it is done like in stop animation, um, so it has them kind of going into the shelter. And my, my I was watching this kind of late at night, and my wife comes in uh, to the basement, starts talking about like vacation plans that we want to go on, and I'm just sitting there like crying. I have a thousand yard stare. I'm like thinking about my parents and all this different stuff. And I just told my wife, like, I need a minute, please. I can't talk about this right now. I think she kind of laughed and walked away. But yeah, it's uh, it's pretty rough. It's it's a hard scene to to watch. And in the, in the, even in the comic book itself, uh, it, it's a hard read. Uh, it's totally heartbreaking. Uh, it's like they're putting on their own body bags. And then who knows if they'll ever be found. You know, they kind of essentially bury themselves in the shelter all the while still affirming that the government authorities will know what to do, the powers will be, that be will get to us in the end, and, and so on. They're told to make sure that their social security numbers and all their documentation, their driver's license, all of their important documents are also with them, either in the bag or in the shelter, to make it easier. Incredibly obedient. Yeah. And so at the end, there's this bit where they start to try and comfort each other for the, the final time, and they start trying to pray. But they don't really know how. It's obvious they're not they're not people who go to the church. James starts saying the beginnings and ends of various, you know, odds and ends of biblical phrases, some of which are more comforting to mm-hmm. Hilda than others. There's one he says, which is into the valley of the shadow of death, which is a, a kind of a misquote of Psalm 23:4, which should end, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And this should be a comforting line for Hilda, but actually Jim James goes goes wrong on the last line, and he ends it with Alfred Tennyson's famous poem that every school child in the UK would have known, mm-hmm. The Charge of the Light Brigade, which also quotes Psalm 23.4. And the first answer goes like this. It says, half a league, half a league, half a league onward, all in the valley of death rode the 600. Forward the light brigade, charge for the guns, he said. Into the valley of death rode the 600. And Tennyson's poem is about a really terrible military decision during the Crimean War, where mm. 600 horsemen were sent into a valley surrounded by cannons on, on all sides, and about 250 of them were killed. But they bravely followed orders. And so there's a kind of this obvious parallel to the nuclear decision making of when the wind blows. And we might realize suddenly also at this point that it's actually not the first reference to Tennyson's poem in the play. And throughout, Jim is saying, ours is not to question why. Hmm. And that's that's kind of another misquote. It says theirs is not to reason why, theirs is but to do and die. And so it kind of all comes together in this final kind of misprayer, essentially. And there's no comfort. There's no psychological release. 
at this point. There's there's no obvious passage to heaven. Uh, it's it's more like a Samuel Beckett play. It just goes down, and there's no hope, and there's no reason to hope. Yeah, <laughs> wow. Just it takes you down with it. I've spent more than I would like to in any given week thinking about this book. <laughs> wow, and you know, to me as someone who you know grew up grew up in the United States, uh, uh, I did not get any of that reference at the end. Like, I actually was really wondering. I'm glad you brought that up, and I just, that's why I'm I'm really glad you wanted to do this on the podcast. The, the final line of Road the Six Hundred, which is the last thing you hear and the last thing you see in the movie and the book, I I didn't get that. I didn't understand what was the context was, but it clearly it it still worked on me. I still mm. got that it was some kind of passage. And um, the thing that really got me was when he says, lay me down in the green pastures. And, I, and he says, I can't remember anymore. And she goes, that was nice, dear. I like the bit about the green pastures. Um, wow. Yeah. I mean, even that, that, the, yeah, that got me pretty good. Um, in the book, it just kind of ends on a, a gray double page again. Uh, to signal everything is gone, and in the movie we get the the, the end credits, uh, and then like a Marvel movie, you get kind of a post credit scene where you hear Morse code signal start to play, and you may wonder like, oh, is that government and the civilization starting to come together? Are we gonna finally follow that last chapter of Protect and Survive, which is what to do after the attack and kind of rebuilding civilization and all of that? Uh, nope, it's a uh, it's Morse code for M A D or mutually assured destruction. Um, kind of that's where we we wrap up here yeah well let's uh let's get into what i call my parking lot movie discussion if we were one of the 10 or so people uh, in the united states that watched this film in the theater uh we would be hopefully seeing this movie during the daytime so we can go outside and it's still bright out um and we can recover from this but kind of what what would our conversation be that's a little different than you know not two nu- nuke nerds uh going back and forth but let's kind of talk about it from the film perspective or as the comic mm-hmm. book itself so I have, I have like three questions here and if anything else you want to talk about we can certainly do that too my first question is you know is the movie more effective as a cartoon um or if it was made say rebooted today like all things are as kind of just a fully kind of live action format with real actors and their faces and all of that. Is there anything particularly about the fact that it's a comic book, but also for the movie, this animation style that they do? Yeah, I, I mean, I think you can do things with cartoons that you can't do with live action films. And, it, and if they were going to do a live action film, it would be a bit like Threads, which we've we've talked about a couple of times here already. You know, it's, it's a live action film where everything just kind of gets worse and worse. As you said at the beginning, there's something so disarming to feel like you're watching a, a children's film throughout. And, and let's say, you know, someone had this on the TV and you walked into the room halfway through, you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily know that this wasn't a children's film. It might, if you're in the second half of the film, maybe you'd, you'd pick it up pretty quickly. But certainly for the first half, you could be fooled. Personally, I still think the graphic novel has the edge just because of the beautiful pencil drawings and the way, you know, with those colors we talked about at the end, the way it can evoke the decline. The animation doesn't quite manage to do that in the same way. If, if it were up to me, I'd really love to see uh, an animation, a re- maybe even a remake of the animation that was drawn like the snowman is. So with, you know, a couple of hundred thousand pencil drawings, I guess it probably wouldn't be commercially viable. And maybe there are more relevant things that you could make today but if, but if it was an ideal world scenario that would be what i'd like to watch i say like <laughs> yeah it, it would it would likely be done uh like pixar animation it would look like toy story 5 mm. i mean there's a i also i agree with you I, I think that this story the way it's told i think it you could do a good story like this in live action and it would be fine and but it's a different beast entirely when it's the animation style you know one of the things that we're going to cover in the podcast at some point this is an also 
part of it is because I'm trying to convince my usual podcast host, Gabe, uh, who's too busy, you know, in his garden trying to grow before the bomb hits and harvest. Um, there's another great kind of Japanese uh, manga cartoon as well as a, a movie, uh, Barefoot Gen which is like a five or six part series um, written by someone who was a Hiroshima survivor. And it's, you know, essentially a kid's, you know, cartoon, but it is about surviving Hiroshima. And it is also very, very effective. And I haven't seen the movie yet. I'm, I'm really, I'm looking at it right now next to my copy of Threads and Fallout 4. And I'm trying not to for a while because uh, I know it's going to be really difficult to watch. I'll, I'll get the courage up to maybe do that next year at some point before my baby's born. I can't, I can't watch that while trying to also like, you know, comfort the child. You've got to pace yourself with this stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wish there was a a, a version I could watch of the play production mm. of this, because I would love to see what that looks like. Um, I'm not saying it couldn't be done that way, but man, it works so well, the animation style that it does. Do you think this movie would be relevant to audiences today? Is it something they could pick up? Say they weren't a nuclear nerd and you were just kind of show this uh, to somebody, or is it you know, a little bit dated and it really, really need to understand what life was like in the United Kingdom during World War II or the Cold War for them to really kind of pick this up. So I think if you've, if you've got this far in the podcast, I'd really like to hope that you're feeling inspired enough to watch the film. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd, I'd go back to me as uh, an eight-year-old kid reading yep. this book in my school, having no idea what happened in it really, or any of the political context, but nevertheless, it still had a big impact on me and, and probably can be traced as the thing, the first thing that I kind of came, where I came across nuclear weapons and, wow. and, and in a way it kind of inspired me to do what I'm doing today. So yeah, I think it can definitely have relevance to people today. But I would say it, it is very firmly a cultural product of its time. And I think that's why it's a kind of cult book or movie. And what we need today is more movies that deal with nuclear weapons, but in a way that's relevant to today's generations. One of the big funders in America of nuclear disarmament work is called the Plowshares Fund. Mm-hmm. And a few years ago, they published a brilliant report that shows that there are almost no movies after the Cold War that have nuclear weapons as a theme, except where they're used to kill, alien, uh, kill aliens like in Independence Day, or to ward off errant asteroids like in Armageddon, or when they're being threatened by international terrorists like Austin Powers. Mm -hmm. So they they don't deal with nuclear weapons as a a feature of interstate relations, which is arguably the most important way that we need to be talking about them. And I think that's a really glaring gap in our cultural education. Relying on a, a film like this to fill that gap, I think does risk perpetuating that perception that's very commonplace today among younger people, that nuclear weapons are this kind of 1980s issue and we've kind of solved it. It's not really a problem, or at least the powers that be are, are dealing with it. And there's so much instability today that we sh- that we could talk about, so many ways into that conversation. We shouldn't limit ourselves to the things that have already been made. That is a really great point. It's great to draw on these things because they are very powerful and they reflect a, a moment in time. You know, you can always make the case, well, this is still kind of the way it is today, but for people trying to absorb this information, they can put that and make it look like a, yeah, that's a period piece. The same way that we don't, you know, worry too much about the the, the problems of Downton Abbey. We, like, we don't concern ourselves with those specific things. We concern ourselves today with, uh, you know, what's going on in Succession or any of those other kind of um, shows. I, I would wish there was something there uh, that was being done today, but it is it is so difficult to get that uh, the funding for a movie like that today. Well, this, this is where I'd make an appeal to illustrators, to animators, filmmakers, authors, musicians, artists, you know, anyone working in the creative industries, get creative, make some work about the effects and the twisted logics of nuclear weapons, make a, a when the wind blows for the 21st century, because because we need it. And you'll stand out because no one else is doing it. <laughs> 
And and if you need help with that, I, I recommend a podcast that uh, someone who's going to be on my show uh, very soon. Um, I've been on her program and it's terrific. Uh, Natasha Bajma, uh, she does this podcast called Authors of Mass Destruction. And it is for people who are filmmakers or writers that want to write stories like this, but also get the facts right and not end up on my super critical podcast talking about why, you know, this isn't, this is clearly not how it's done. But if you want to tell those stories more effectively and, and be inspired to do that, there's lots of resources for you out there, um, out there, including some of the research that Basic puts together, which we'll talk about at the end as good materials for people to be able to look at. Unless there's anything else you want to cover, I think we can wrap up here with my rating system, which I normally do, which is I, I like to be consistent, you know, one to five, five being the best or something that you really, really, really like or rec- want to recommend. I'd have a consistent scale so that we can compare across all the different things that we cover. But because I get super critical about the content, I also like to tailor the rating system based on what we've seen. I've crunched the numbers. I've, I've gone to the, the UK survival guide and, and checked out the references. And, and what I want to do here is uh, one out of five civil defense pamphlets, because one pamphlet is enough to help you and yours and your home. Two is enough to help out your ungrateful beatnik kid, but having five means that you can become the local civil defense community director and soon your whole neighborhood will have inner refuges in their home. Um, I'll be quick. I think this is a five for me. Both the book and the film, I think, are seminal. They're terrific. Um, I don't have a lot of nitpicks on this one. I think this one is as nearly perfect as you can get. Maybe the movie has a few of those weird scenes that you don't really understand what's going on. Mostly the <laughs> initial fantasy scene, but... After talking with you and kind of figuring a little bit more of like the context of why that's there, uh, I think it all makes sense to me. And again, it's one of those unfortunate things. I think it's a five. (laughs) I think I really like it, but I don't know if I want to recommend it to people. It's the same thing with Threads. I think Threads is terrific, but I never want to be the one that's responsible for someone seeing that movie. Maybe I think the comic may be the best for me here um maybe when my child is like 15 i'll let them see it and that's about it i'm not going to put this in the child's bin next to oh the places you'll go yeah don't do that (laughs) what about you sebastian how would you rate these things and you can either rate them separately or together however you want to do it because you know you live your life yeah so i i think for me certainly the book is a five it's it's my favorite of all of the expressions and it's i think it's a really original piece of storytelling i think it's a really original medium to tell that story where you don't really get there's nothing else like it and the artwork is beautiful the the contrast in the book between the good times and the bad is so wonderfully portrayed through through the drawings uh i think the animation i i I prepared a 3.5, but actually I think I might bump it up to 4. Hmm. Um, it's certainly probably reached more people, and that's an important factor for me. But it does, to me, it doesn't quite have that charm uh, or the level of detail. Maybe just not quite as disarming somehow for, for not being like a sort of Tintin book. You know, when you say you're not going to recommend it to anybody, yeah, I, I think maybe it's one of those things you have to do once, you know, like, like many things in life. And then you go away and you're a little bit changed by it, but... Probably in a good way. You've you've stretched the edges of life that little bit further than than they were before. Just just don't you know feel you need to do what I've been doing, which is kind of close reading the novel for a week to to draw out every little tiny bit of detail because uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you'll drive you'll, you'll drive yourself into a potato sack. <laughs> oh, that's so sad. Um, yeah, let's uh, let's come up with some things we can recommend to people that they can they can watch to maybe either clear their palates or divert their attention away from from uh, getting into potato sacks. I'd recommend a few things. Uh, I've already mentioned this before, but the Atomic Hobo podcast uh, by Julie McDowell is terrific, and it's really a great uh, weekly podcast. It, she puts me to shame about how quickly she turns these episodes around, and it's it's a great depiction of, of UK nuclear policy, and also she has a book coming out. So check her podcast and uh, her upcoming book. I would recommend people check out 
Protest and Survive, which was a parody protest of Protect and Survive. It's a little bit longer than a pamphlet. It was written by E.P. Thompson in 1980. It's a really great criticism of the official civil defense plans, and it was a really big inspiration and part of the campaign for nuclear disarmament movements and really inspired them to kind of set up even... This copy of Protect and Survive that I got from the Imperial War Museum, it references Protest and Survive. You can get various highlights of it online. And finally, I recommend you need a palate cleanser. You need something to bleach your eyes after watching or reading this. Go see The Snowman. Or if you're really into it, go watch some of those old 1980s, 90s Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle uh, cartoons. I'm going to need to watch a few episodes to kind of clear my head after this. (laughs) What do you got, Sebastian? Definitely go watch The Snowman this holiday season and be happy and try and keep these two things as, as separated as you can. More people in the States should know about the snowman. I, I, I've never yet found anybody who knows about it. So, um, But it's exquisite. It's really the essence of British Christmas in some ways. You know, It's up there with the Queen's speech, mm. um, which goes on after lunch. I think some of the Hayao Miyazaki films do a really good job of conveying the horrors of nuclear weapons and militarism in a cartoon form as well. Um, two of those that come to mind are Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind and uh, Laputa, Castle in the Sky. And they both have scenes which have kind of nuclear explosions um, or something like it mm-hmm. in. Um, but in a way that's, you know, they're kind of adult films, kind of child films. Maybe there's a bit of a similarity here. Don't want to be too sort of Western-centric by saying there's nothing else like it. So good to go check them out. And then if, if I can do a little plug, um, this is the only podcast I've ever really done, with the exception of one I made in 2016 with a friend of mine called Annabelle Roberts. Um, we did an interview with Setsuko Thurlow, and uh, she's a, a survivor of Hiroshima. Um, and it was just a really an interesting little interview with her and also Bruce Kent, who was the uh, the head of the campaign for nuclear disarmament. That and he would have worked very closely with uh, E.P. Thompson, um, who made the protest and survive pamphlet. Um, so you can check that out. It's called Setsuko Thurlow interview with a Hiroshima survivor, um, and that's available on the the School of Oriental and African Studies website. Okay, terrific. Yeah, I'll make sure to have all of those things uh, in our podcast notes. And also, if people go on uh, supercriticalpodcast.com, there's a button at the top called Resources, and you can get all of this stuff plus other materials that I use to inform and build the show notes uh, for each podcast. I have all those listed there so people can check those those things out. Uh, Sebastian, very much thank you for coming on the podcast to talk about what unites and, and brings us together, which is really depressing films about nuclear war. <laughs> So th- thanks for coming on for doing that. Thanks so much, Tim. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, not least to wear my English literature hat again. <laughs> uh, we've been talking about doing this podcast for uh, almost two years to the day. So I'm really glad we've we've found the time. Yeah, I'm glad it was able to work out that way. But if people don't want to wait two years to hear from you again, uh, where can they find uh, some of your work, either on Twitter or uh, through BASIC? Where, what can people check out that you have coming up? So if you're interested in our work at BASIC, then I'd encourage you to go and have a look at our website, which is www.basicint.org. Uh, and you can see our programs there. Broadly put, we work behind the scenes with officials and experts to build international trust, reduce the risks of nuclear conflict and advance multilateral nuclear disarmament. At the moment, we're doing a lot of work about building international understanding and dialogue on nuclear norms and responsibilities. Uh, we're doing a bit on nuclear risk reduction in Europe. and We're trying to break down some of the big steps that states have already kind of identified as the ones you'd need to take to disarmament, but into smaller steps. 
So we're calling that the stepping stones approach. We're also doing a bit of work on gender and nuclear weapons, uh, on nuclear weapons education and on emerging technologies. So if any of that interests you, uh, you can go check it out. You can drop me a line if you want. If you've enjoyed the program and you'd like to become a friend of BASIC for £2.50 a month or £25 a year, you can do that on our website too and we'd be super grateful. Or should I say, not super critical. Oh, that's hey, that's the name of the podcast. Uh, that's great. Uh, thanks very much, Sebastian. I appreciate that, and I will. Uh, I will actually definitely sign up to become a friend of the of Basic. That sounds awesome. Oh, thanks, Tim. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or you want to tell us what we got wrong, uh, either uh, nuke-wise or, you know, whether we ruined your childhood and Christmas, there are a couple ways you can contact the show. Uh, We have the website I mentioned, supercriticalpodcast.com. We're on Twitter at Nuclear Podcast. And I have an email account that I check, supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. I always love hearing uh, people's thoughts on the episode uh, through the email and also suggestions about what should we be covering in the future. I know a lot of people have suggested that we covered When the Wind Blows, and I'm finally glad that we got around to doing it. See, I've been trying. It just took two years. Until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer and Sebastian Brixie Williams. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we are bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one. Thank you.